going to talk about contentment. Contentment. One of the great lessons every child needs to learn is how to be content. In fact, when I say the word contentment, if the kids that are in here, if your, kids, if your parents have tried to teach you this over the years, you might kind of roll your eyes, oh geez, content, right? Be content with what you have. Um, every child is born as a bundle of desires and wants and needs. There are genuine needs, and then there's all kinds of desires and wants as well. And the battle is to provide for the needs of our children, to bless them with things that they want, not everything, but things that they want, and to teach them how to be content. In fact, it can sometimes be hard to help them even differentiate between what is a need and what is a want. How many have had kids or have kids now and your kids say, I need that, whatever it might be, that sweatshirt or that game or whatever. I need to be able to do that. It is obviously not a need. It's said with a lot of gusto and exaggeration and drama, but it's certainly not a need. Well, it's not just little children who need to learn contentment. It's also growing children. It's also teenage children kids, it's also young adults, and quite frankly, it's also the rest of us. Uh, This is a lesson we all need to learn. This is a lesson we desperately need to learn. We need to learn like Paul when he said in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, let's face it, the kind of deprivation Paul would have experienced, none of us probably ever have. I mean, we've we've been hungry, but then we just go to the pantry and get what we want or go to the store. Paul learned this secret, he called it, of contentment. At a time of unprecedented affluence that we live in, that we all experience to some degree, obviously varying degrees, this affluence that's in the West and even more specifically in America, we need to learn to be content in every situation. Our text this morning contrasts two things, the love of money, and I would say the love not just of money like dollar bills, but the love of money and things money can give you and true contentment. These two things are contrasted in very stark imagery this morning. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book with a great title. He wrote, his, I think he wrote it about 400 years ago, 350 years ago. And the, the title of the book is this, The Rare Jewel of Christian contentment. It's a wonderful book, but the title is a gem in itself. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. It's a jewel. Contentment is a jewel. It's a precious thing. And it's a rare thing. It's not a common thing. And it's Christian contentment he's talking about, not just a general okayness or general resignation with life, but it's a Christian contentment. In other words, it's not a joyless, godless resignation 
It's Christian contentment. It's founded, it's rooted in Christ. In the opening pages of the book, Burroughs describes contentment as this. He says it's a sweet inward heart thing. It is a work of the Spirit indoors. It's a work of the Spirit in our hearts indoors. True contentment is, a, is an inward reality. It is a heart thing. And of course, we know that the heart is the seat or the spring from which all the issues of life flow. And of course, this is indeed a work of the Spirit. So let's look at our text this morning. Let's look at the contrast between contentment and the love of money. True contentment, or what Paul says, godliness with contentment and the love of money. And then I want to spend a bit of time at the end looking at the great gain, Paul says. Paul says it's great gain to have godliness with contentment. Now remember last week in our discussion of false teachers in verses 3 to 5, we concluded by looking at how false teachers often they see godliness as a means of gain. In other words, they are motivated by money often. Not always, but often. They're, they're motivated by money. They use religion. They use spirituality. They use a, a kind of charismatic teaching ability to gain riches or money. And what Paul does after verse 5 is he digresses from the subject of false teachers to point us to the great gain that is to be had in godliness with contentment. When godliness is accompanied with contentment, there is great gain. That's what he says in verse 6. He says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Notice it doesn't say just gain. There's not just little gain. It's great gain. The Greek word is megas, from where we get our word mega. Okay, there's mega gain to be had in godliness with contentment. In fact, it seems Paul is insinuating that the false teachers who are aiming at gain, financial, financial gain, are aiming far too low. The great gain that we have in godliness with contentment far surpasses the earthly gain of material wealth. We're going to look at this more later, okay? We're going to go back, we're going to come back to that later. But the point Paul is making is that in godliness, a, which is a Godward life, a life lived in reverence for God, there is great gain when this godliness is accompanied or has with it contentment. So, what is this sweet inward heart thing called contentment? Well, this word in the New Testament is only used twice, and it means a sense of being well-supplied of being well cared for, a condition of life in which you have no need. In fact, the only other place this word is used in the New Test Testament is 2 Corinthians 9.8, where Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound so that you may have all sufficiency. It's the word it's translated sufficiency. So that you may have all contentment or all sufficiency. If I could put it this way, contentment is a sweet inward Spirit-worked, gracious sense in our hearts that everything truly is okay. It's a work of God's Spirit that everything really is okay. And there's a, here's an important qualifier to that, okay? This 
sense of contentment is independent of external circumstances. And we know this because Paul says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being content. Paul tells us in verse 7 why he can say that godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Isn't that interesting? You came into the world, dirt broke. You didn't have anything. And when you die, you won't be able to take anything with you. I read somewhere that when John D. Rockefeller died, who was probably the most wealthy person that's ever lived, obviously relative, relatively speaking, at, at, his height, at the height of his wealth, but one of his assistants was asked, how much did he leave behind? And the assistant wisely answered, he left it all behind. He didn't take anything with him. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now Paul, when he wrote this, when he wrote, we brought nothing in, we can't take anything out, he may have been thinking of Job. You remember the story of Job? Job was a wealthy man, lots of oxen, donkeys, camels, sheep. He had it all, herds and herds of these animals and land, and in a single day, he lost it all. You guys remember that in Job chapter 1? Like he's sitting there, and one servant after another says, oh yeah, your oxen are gone, yeah, your donkeys too, yeah, your camels, they were struck by lightning, and the sheep are gone too. And to top it all off, the last servant came and said, your children were feasting together and a great windstorm came and demolished the house and your kids are all dead. And how did Job respond? Job 1, 20 and 21, it says, he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said this, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood that what we have, and we need to learn this, that what we have and what we don't have ultimately is up to God. And that's true contentment. We, of course, understand the opposite of true contentment. Ecclesiastes 5.10 describes a man this way. He says, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Again, Rockefeller, J. John D. Rockefeller, who apparently at the height of his wealth was worth like 1% of the entire nation's GDP. That's <laughs> quite a bit of money. Right? The GDP last year, I think, was like 20, $21 trillion. When he was asked one time, how much money is enough? His response was, just a little more. Those who love money are never satisfied with it, or things that money can buy. 
Paul in verse 8 gives us the biblical perspective when he says, but if I have food and clothing, or excuse me, if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. Whatever is above our basic needs is a blessing to be enjoyed, but apparently not needed for our ultimate well-being. It's not needed for a life of godliness with contentment. Now, how bizarre does that sound in our day today? <clears throat> I'm good with just a couple shirts, a couple pairs of jeans, and two meals a day. That's, that's all I need. Of course, Paul is not advocating for a life of asceticism, you know, self-flatulation or uh, flagella- uh, flagella- uh, whatever. He's not, he's, not, he's not advocating for that at all. Flatulation, that's not the right word. Um, he's also not advocating for a kind, of, a kind of vow of poverty. He's not saying Christians ought to just vow to be poor. And of course, the Bible does not say that every Christian ought to just give everything away. Right? We're to enjoy God's good gifts, but by the grace of God, we are to cultivate, like like when you cultivate the ground of a garden, we're to cultivate this inward, sweet, gracious sense that all is good, even when I don't get that, or you don't get that promotion. Even when you don't get that raise, even when the finances are a little thin this month, or have been for a while, even when I don't or you don't get that new iPhone. Everything is okay. We're content. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Um, Really to quell our anxieties about the things that we actually really need? He said, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your Father feeds the birds. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I think it's fascinating. Jesus connects fear and anxiety with a lack of faith. And I think we can say a lack of contentment, ultimately, we're going to see this later, is connected with a lack of faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the the, the nations, the, the pagan nations seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need will be added to you. Did you catch all that? The father feeds the birds. He clothes the lilies of the field. 
He knows what you need and will give what you need. Seek the kingdom. Or as Job put it, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is godliness with contentment. Now, Paul contrasts this with an extreme desire for riches. He uses the word craving. He uses the word desires to be rich. He uses the word love of money. And I also just want to, just want to make sure that I add this again. Not just money like I have a bunch of dollar bills under my mattress, but also all the things money can afford us and give us. What Paul does here is he gives a grave warning. And I think we need to hear this and be warned. I think we all need to hear this and be warned. We live with so much. Kids, pay attention to what I'm about to say because this afflicts you as well. The love for money and things that money can give you. The reason I know it afflicts you is because I once was your age and because I have six kids. So, the love of money. Before I jump into verses 9 and 10 about the dangers of riches or the dangers of loving money or craving things, I want to make just two sidebar observations. Paul doesn't talk about this, but, it, but, it, but I think they need to be made just for the sake of balance. One, the first thing, first, so two, sidebar applications. The first one, or observations, the first one is you don't have to be rich to love money. You don't have to have a lot to want a lot, right? In fact, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich, they're wannabes. They're not rich, but they desire to be rich. You don't have to be rich to love money. It's obvious people like John D. Rockefeller and others that you might be able to name that these wealthy people with so much money they could swim in it in an Olympic-sized swimming pool and that these people exhibit this love for money and their desire for ever more money and things. But you can also be a beggar in a remote Ethiopian village and love money and be driven by a love for money and things. The second observation is this. Wealth itself is not evil. Okay? Wealth itself is not evil. God often blesses our hard work with material blessing, material wealth, and that's good. We should, we should work hard and expect God to bless the work of our hands. That's a good thing. This text does not say money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. That's the, a root, the root of all kinds of evils or a root of all kinds of evils. In just about eight verses down the road, a little bit later in 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives positive instruction to those who are wealthy. And here's what he says. He says, charge them. Those who have riches in this age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So those that are wealthy, those that have wealth, that's the positive instruction. Listen to the pithy way J.C. Ryle puts these two things together. He said, we, he says, um, we may love money without having it, and we may have money without loving it. I think that's wise. But Paul's emphasis here is on the grave and serious and deep danger, deadly danger, of loving money. And I want you to notice two things in verses 9 and 10. First, verse 9 shows us that the love of money inevitably spirals downward. It it spirals downward. Here's what it says in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich, first, they fall into temptation. Right? Temptation itself is not sinful. Jesus in the wilderness was tempted. But the lust for riches leads one to fall into temptation. And then it says, into a snare. It's like a, a trap. Think of like, People who got trap animals, right? They lay snares for these animals to, they step in and they're trapped and they can't get out. The love of money leads people to fall into temptation, then into a snare, and then from there into many, not one or two or five, but many senseless, utterly foolish and harmful desires. Harmful could be translated injurious or hurtful. It hurts the one who desires to be rich and it hurts those around him and others that maybe they harm in their pursuit of money. And finally, where does the downward spiral end? Brothers and sisters, it ends in hell. It ends in hell, right? It plunges people into ruin and destruction. The word plunge here, I, the, the picture that came to my mind was uh, a movie I watched, um, what was it called? The new, um, newer Pearl Harbor movie, uh, Midway, I think. Is that what it was? And uh, this American soldier that was captured by the Japanese and he wouldn't give them the information they wanted. And so they threw him in the water. They, they tied, tied his, his, his ankle to, a, to an anchor and threw him in the Pacific Ocean and then dropped the anchor, which plunged him to the depths of the ocean. This love of money will ultimately sink people. It will plunge people into ruin and utter destruction. The love of money 
spirals inexorably downward. But the second thing I want you to see here is that the love of money produces a whole bunch of other bad fruit. For the love of money, verse 10, is a root of all, of all kinds of evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of great, massive evil. Really, the normal sense of the Greek is not all kinds of evil, but all evil. It's interesting, maybe 60... Some of the more modern translations change that, probably just more interpretive work instead of just trans, translating. But the older translations, almost universally, King James, the Revised Standard Version Bible, uh, the Geneva Bible, they almost universally say the love of money is the root of all evil. Let that sink in. Now you might think, how can that be? And I think more modern translators, probably to get rid of some of the ambiguity of that, like really every form of evil, to get rid of that ambiguity, they added all kinds of evil. But let, let's think this through just a bit. The next phrase says this. So, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For, or excuse me, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Think about what Paul's saying there. It is through this craving for money and stuff and things that money can give us. It's through this craving that the soul forsakes faith in Christ. The, the love of money entices the soul to walk away from God. Because money becomes God. Because money becomes God. To love money is to serve money. Paul, Jesus said that. And to, to serve money is to worship money and to live for money and to do all that you do for money. It's a clear link to idolatry. Jesus said this. He said, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The love of money is the root of great evil. All evil, great evil, all kinds of evil. And from what we see here, the greatest evil, which is to shun and turn away from Christ. This is why, just, just going back to last week's message a bit, this is why the present, and I would say just the excessive prosperity gospel is so reprehensible. It is ghastly and wicked. 
because it says Jesus, if you have enough faith in him, he will give you what your heart really wants, which is money. Think of two egregious examples we have in the Bible of those, because of their love for money, they, they turn away from Christ. They forsake Christ. The Pharisees. In the very next verse of Luke 16, verse 14, I just read where Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. The very next verse, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. That's not incidental. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and ridiculed Christ. And they conspired to murder him. And of course, we know Judas, who was greedy, right? He, was, he carried the money bag for the disciples, and he, was, he would help himself to it. And what did he do? He betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, I think, right? Yeah, 30 pieces of silver for money. Money is the root of great evil. All evil, all kinds of evil. So I, I hope you see the stark contrast between this true contentment, godliness with contentment, and the love of money. It couldn't be more stark. But we have a bit of a problem if we end right here. Here's why. No amount of natural persuasion about the evil of loving money can wrench you free from it. Right? No amount of warning of the fires of hell have the power to wrench someone free from the desire to be rich if that's what they worship. And no mere stoic, stoic joyless resignation to the way things are can produce a true, deep, godliness with contentment. We need to know and we need to see with faith and we need to taste of the great gain that there is in godliness with contentment. What is the great gain of godliness with contentment? Contentment cannot be merely seen as a self-sufficient, I'm fine, I'm good, I'll be okay, no problem, no. The Christian who is truly content is so because he finds his sufficiency in Christ. He finds his true riches in Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 13.5 because I think it's so helpful from 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy 6, it's so helpful to kind of connect this idea of be free from the love of money and be content and the riches we have in Christ. It says this, keep your life free from the love of money, right? Love of money is dangerous and be content with what you have, right? Contentment for or because he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you see the logic here? Don't love money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because you have Christ. The owner of everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwells therein, it all belongs to him. 
And he has said, I will never, ever, ever leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Be content with your earthly possessions because if you are a Christian, you have Jesus Christ. He gives himself to you. This is what Paul discovered. Do you remember Paul before he was a Christian, before he was converted, before he met Jesus on that road to Damascus? He was a Pharisee. He had a bright future ahead of him. In fact, he described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And if he was like the Pharisees described in Luke 16, he loved money. Well, good for him because he probably had a nice living that he was making and would keep moving up the ladder, so to speak. He was the cream of the crop. And yet, after Christ converted him, listen to what Paul says. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain. That's the word gain Christ. For Paul, Jesus, brothers, and sisters, he was not a ticket to heaven. He was not a means to everything else that we want in our heart naturally. We all want, right? Naturally, we want things, and we want a happy life, and we want good. We want all these things. He is not a means to those things. He is not, for Paul, Jesus was not the garnishment on the plate of mostly worldly pleasures. He was not an add-on for Paul. What Paul gained in Christ so far surpassed whatever he lost in terms of earthly advantages and riches and comforts. It was not even comparable Now, it makes me think Paul saw something, tasted something that we need to see and need to taste. What is the great gain of godliness with contentment? The great gain is Jesus Christ himself and all the blessings of God that come in and through him. Here's what Paul said in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, for a long time, I read that verse, and I never really made the connection. I, just, I it kind of was like, the, the folk, to me, it seemed like the focus was on the all things. But then few years ago is like oh my gosh no he gave us Christ how will he not also with Christ give us all things he gave us Jesus the treasure of all treasures so Paul can say things like Colossians 3 Christ who is our life 
Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote the book, The, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he said, he wrote this, it is the happiness of heaven to have God be all in all. This is the great gain of godliness with contentment, brothers and sisters. It is to realize, I want to be free from the love of money and things that money can give me. And I don't know about you, I mean, I, I feel that. The pull for stuff, worldly things, creature comfort, whatever. But to be free from that and to be content with what we have because we have the supreme treasure in Jesus Christ. To know Christ as the infinite treasure that he is, that's what we want to know. To relish all the eternal riches that belong to us in him. And there are eternal riches. I mean, we could, we could, we could take several messages and unpack the all things in Christ. We need to see with the eyes of faith this glorious reality. We need to have our eyes opened to this. Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, and I pray this often, and, and I, if you, you, you might know this prayer, I would ask you to pray it as well. He prayed that, that God would grant a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened. And then he says, so that we might see the hope, or maybe he says no, but I think kind of metaphorically, it's seeing, right? Seeing with faith, seeing with the eyes of our understanding. We might know the hope to which he's called us, the glorious riches of his inheritance and the saints and so forth, the surpassing greatness of his power at work toward us. We live in the land of plenty. The air we breathe, the air we breathe is covetousness. Look at what you don't have, but what you probably want. So, I want to suggest this morning that we take three action steps to deliberately cultivate an enjoyment of this great gain we have in Christ. And I want to suggest we do this that, that we do this as a church. I mean, how do we do it as a church? That we just all commit to it. Okay? Three things. P, P, P. All right? Three Ps. Pray. Pray. Pray Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your husband, wife, your children. Pray it for um, your, your extended family. Pray it for the body of Christ. Pray for a spirit of wisdom and, and revelation. Pray that the eyes of our understanding would be open. Pray this. Commit to pray this daily for yourself, your family, and this church family. That our eyes would be opened. That we would be stunned at the glory of who Christ is and that he is ours. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The God who said, Let there be light has has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Pray that we would have our eyes open to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the person of Christ, and that we would treasure him 
above all things. Second, okay, so pray. Number two, point. Speak to one another about Christ. Point each other to Christ. When, some, when you get together with someone and they're going through something challenging or maybe they're grumbling and murmuring, point them to Christ. When someone's going through a hard time financially, you know what, help them too, no doubt. <clears throat> we we want to do that. <clears throat> you don't want to say be warm and filled and not give someone what they need. Okay, help them materially. But I would suggest, more importantly, point them to Christ. Help them materially, point them to Christ. Just incessantly, point, let's point each other to our Savior and the supreme treasure that he is. Amen? And third, okay, so pray, point, and third, promote. Let's, let's promote Christ as our treasure. This, and what I mean by that, evangelism. Let's, let's promote Jesus as our treasure. He is more than, like I said, more than just a ticket to heaven. And we can't promote him as our treasure if he isn't our treasure. So that's why points one and two, right? Pray and point each other to Christ. But then, let's promote Christ as the treasure of all treasures. The treasure, capital T. Our supreme devotion and love is to him. He is our treasure. Listen, you and I talk about and promote what we love most or what we're excited about, don't we? Whether it's a dish your wife made or your football team that is rocking it or your children who you love and adore so much, you talk, we talk about what we love and adore. When Christ is our supreme, our supreme adoration is given to him, when, when we love him above all things, money and all the things money can give us, when we treasure him above every earthly treasure, then it will just be what we want to tell others about. You think? I think so. So pray, point, promote Christ as our treasure so that, such, such that we know the experience that Paul had and knew when he said in Philippians 1, 20 and 21, I love this, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? For me to live is Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. Life is about Christ because he is life. And to die would actually be gain because I would depart from this body and go to be with him in a grander way than we experience now. We sang this morning. I was so glad I caught Luke this morning early up here at the church because we the last few times we've sung the song um, Be Thou My Vision I, I've noticed my favorite verse is not was not in the computer and I felt slighted not because of Luke at all we probably had it that way for years and I caught him this morning I said we gotta put this verse in let's put it in right now so we did riches I heed not nor man's empty praise Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we worship you.
we give you praise. We thank you, Father, that you have not withheld your son. You didn't withhold him from us. You are so gracious and generous. Open our eyes, Father, to see your great, bountiful, overflowing heart toward your people to give us your son. And with him, you will give us all the things we need now and forever. And with him, you will give us all the things that we, at the deepest level, truly want. You'll give them in a holy way to us and we can enjoy them without turning them into idols. We thank you so much, Father. You're gracious, generous, kind, and loving. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are this treasure. You've given yourself to us. You said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Why are you so excited about money when you have me? Oh, Lord, open our eyes, I pray. Precious Spirit, open our eyes. Grant us eyes to see the glory of our Savior, that all the beauties of this world would be as nothing, like Paul said, like rubbish, like garbage, like dung, compared to Christ. We thank you for all the good gifts that you give us in, in, in terms of people we love and and the things that we need, and many other blessings. Father, you've been good to us in that way as well. But I pray this morning that we would be wrenched free from the desire to be rich and to have lots of stuff. Money can give us this incessant desire to get more and more new, better, bigger stuff because Christ is more glorious is a greater treasure. And Father, I pray all of this, that you would do this for us, ultimately that you would do it for your namesake and for your glory, that we would be a people who point one another to Christ and live to promote our treasure, Jesus Christ. Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me? And uh, I want this blessing to just rest on you as you go today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed. Have a blessed day.